And today we're looking at faith. We're looking at this reality of faith. And basically the, uh, what, what I want us to do today is make a faith cake. I want us to look at, at faith and like if we were actually going to like put it together, actually like have it, you know, here with us, in us, uh, what, what are the ingredients? Like what does it take uh, to, to make faith? Because there's a story that Camille just read, once we got the reference right, uh, was that Jesus was healing two blind men. Uh, and, and the main point of the text is because of their faith, according to your faith, be it done to you. And my main point today is that faith is the, the way we experience the power of Jesus' healing presence. Faith is the only way to experience the power of Jesus' healing presence. So we're going to just look uh, through the story, walk through it a little bit, and unpack it. And then I want us to look at the, well, at least three of the ingredients for faith. And ultimately my hope, uh, the cry of my heart today, is to take this, this idea of faith, this churchy word, that honestly doesn't mean much to any of us because it's just it's around there all the time and, and just bring it down into our daily lives and to show that faith in, act, in actuality is immensely practical. So let's dive in. Verse 27 of our sermon text. This is on page 1510 if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible. It says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. So we enter into this story, like this happened, right? Like this is true, and this, this, this actually happened. So Jesus is in the middle of his ministry. He's walking along the road, and at this point, there was a lot of hype around him. He had a lot of crowds. A lot of people were coming to him for all different kinds of things. He had his posse, his 12 disciples, plus probably some other disciples around him. So picture Jesus walking down the road surrounded by this throng of people. And then we see, we see there are two blind people that probably weren't very close into the crowd, weren't very close to Jesus because they couldn't really navigate all the jostling because you know, they were blind, they couldn't see. And so they're on the fringe of this mob of people walking down the road around Jesus, and they're crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David! And mercy, of course, is the, the direct translation of the Greek word here, but uh, that word could also be translated pity. Have pity on us, son of David! And probably in the context, that makes a little bit more sense because they're not calling out for mercy like, you know, people who deserve punishment or harshness and they're asking for mercy, but instead they're asking for pity on, on their suffering for, for being blind. We talk about it a lot in this context. If you had a disability or an illness, uh, the culture this day would have said it's your fault. It's because of sin or something wrong with you that you have this issue. And they would have been seen as unclean and they wouldn't have been able to have jobs and all these different things. So they're asking for pity. They're in rags on the fringe of this group, screaming out for pity. And look what Jesus does, the first part of 28. When he had gone indoors, he ignores them. He just walks past them and goes into the house. Why did he do that? Because we see Jesus, right before this, on the way to, to raise a girl from the dead, and a also out, outsider, an outcast of society, touches his cloak, and he turns around and looks at her and tells her to take heart and has pity on her. So why is he ignoring these guys? Well, mo most of the commentators think it has to do with the term son of David and the cultural context of that term in first century Israel. That term son of David uh, and to Jewish culture is, is a messianic one. It's one that points to the Messiah, God's anointed one, who would come and rescue God's people, which is obviously true of Jesus. Like that's, Jesus was the Messiah. 
But the problem with the culture of Jesus' day is that that messianic idea, that Messiah, the anointed one, had been completely hijacked for political, for the political agenda of Israel and their hope of overthrowing Rome, which was a foreign power that had occupied Israel and was taxing them and abusing them and all that stuff. And so they kind of took a lot of the, the prophecies and the teaching of, of the Messiah coming, and they said, he's going to overthrow Rome and make Israel great again. And so a lot of commentators see Jesus relentlessly trying to depoliticize himself, like extricate himself from the political agenda of those around him and talk about his agenda, which is the kingdom of heaven. He's not come to set up an, an earthly political kingdom, but the kingdom of God. And so the hypothesis is, is that he didn't respond to them in public, calling him the son of David, because to the, the crowd that would have seen him acknowledging, like, yes, I will make Israel great again. I am the son of David come to, to overthrow Rome. But we do see Jesus' tenderness when they go into the house. Look at the rest of 28. He, got, he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? He doesn't ask them about their track record, uh, their, whether they've sinned, whether they stubbed their toe and yelled a bad word. He says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? He asks them about their faith, and they say, yes, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes. Look at verse 29. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus, the immortal, infinite God of the universe, he reached out and touched the eyes of these two men. He touched the face of these two blind beggars and healed them. And I don't know if you're like me, I, I tend to brush over stuff like this and just get to the, like, the point where he's like, you know, getting after the Pharisees or being a revolutionary and stuff. But here we see Jesus come to these two men that probably were looking to him with incorrect theology and he lays his hand. Like, can, you just, can we just savor the, the intimacy of this, the bodily intimacy that God took on a human body and touched other human bodies in compassion and sympathy? And this is our king. He's not aloof. He's not distant from us. I just don't want us to miss the beauty of that. Jesus, he's not an idea. He's not ethereal guru that kind of hovers above the ground and utters empty phrases. He was a man. He had a body. He ate and drank. He went to the bathroom, and he helped people, and he reached out and touched people. This is who we're called to follow, someone who reaches out and touches broken people, messed up people, people who don't have the right theology, people who just want stuff. Jesus sees their faith, and he says, according to your faith, or because you have faith, it will be done to you. There's two things to, to note about this. First, it's not like saying that the amount of your faith makes a difference. Like, uh, if they had a little bit of faith, they'd only be, like, partially healed. They can only see a little bit. If they had a lot of faith, then, you know, then, then the bifocals, if they have a ton of faith, then they can actually have 20-20 vision or something like that. Uh, that the, the amount of faith is not what's in question. It's like he's saying, like, as you have faith, so, so it will be. Second, it's crucial to see that the miracle is in response to faith, not in order to garner it or to create it or to foster it. This is like a really mind-blowing reality of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus does these miracles, it's an inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven, where in some sense it's supernatural, but in the other sense it's like the most natural thing. Like nobody was ever meant to be 
blind. God didn't create anybody blind. It's part of the fall. It's part of brokenness. And so when that breaks in, Jesus' ministry, uh, it's, it's a response to faith that's always there. Most of the time, it's explicitly uh, said in the miracle story. Because this story is in the middle of a trilogy of, of miracles, which is a trilogy of trilogies uh, that we've been going through, uh, I don't know, since like the beginning of the year. And a huge majority of the miracles are, they don't, they don't happen and say like, see, see the miracle? Now you have faith. Now believe. They say, I see your faith. Let it be done to you. And this is important for understanding the role of miracles in Jesus' ministry. Because there is that element of validation, that the miracles validate Jesus' divinity, his godhood, and whatnot. Uh, but we also see lots of other people, not Jesus, not God, doing miracles in Scripture. So there's something more here. And it's important to note that not everybody who sees a miracle responds in faith. It's crazy. Uh, we see it even in this chapter. This is spoiler alert. We'll get here next week. Verse 34. But the, right after Jesus heals a mute man, someone who couldn't talk because of a demon, it says the Pharisees see it. They, they witness it, right, like with their eyes. They say, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Like someone saw a miracle and they didn't like fall on their knees and say, you are God. They said, oh, you're the devil. <laughs> it's by the power of the devil you're doing it. And we see the Pharisees in other parts. They come up and say, like, do a miraculous work so that we might believe in you. And, and he's like, no, and gets in a boat and leaves. Like, Jesus doesn't respond to the dance for us monkey kind of miracles. He instead responds to faith. Again, the main point today is the only way to experience the healing presence of Jesus is through faith. Amen. Look how it ends. This should encourage us. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. <laughs> so they received this incredible healing that would completely transform their lives. And they walk out and completely disregard what the Lord, what the son of David just told them to do. Okay, so that's our story. I want us to show, show us the, the three D's. Uh, of the ingredients uh, for our faith cake. I'm always excited when I can get the points to start with the same letter, so enjoy that. Three Ds. The first one is desperation. I thought our prayer of confession was, was beautiful because it kind of gets at this idea. Uh, these men are desperate. And most of the miracles, I think it's, it's shown explicitly uh, that it's, to, it's done to desperate people. Uh, the, the men have no other options. There's no other like chance to see and uh, they, they're desperate to the point where they're just like drawing attention to themselves, screaming out, have pity on us, have pity on us. Right before this, we see Jesus uh, being approached by a very wealthy, powerful man who had lots of resources, but, is, but he's a brokenhearted father. His daughter had just died, and he kneels, and he's desperate. The woman who had lost all her money because of a chronic uh, bleeding is desperate, has no option. Faith ultimately is looking beyond ourselves like trusting in not me and not uh, not ourselves and so that has to that has to come from trusting something else like we need to trust it it's not like it's a backup plan or an insurance policy that we just have whenever whenever we might need it but instead faith is like the the scene that i've been wearing out in sermons indiana jones in the last crusade his father's been shot. The only chance to save his dad from dying is to get across the bottomless abyss and get the chalice of eternal life. 
uh, and he knows, it, but it, it requires him in his desperation to take the step, the leap of faith into the, into the void, uh, trusting, having faith in the folklore that says a bridge will appear or whatever. Faith that brings us into the healing presence of Jesus comes out of desperation. And so if you're here today and you feel the brokenness of your life, just the unsatisfaction, just the, the restlessness, like things ain't right, that's a great place to be. But on the other hand, I think one of the main reasons that people don't really find Jesus or connect to Jesus or even just care about him at all is not because they have too little faith, but because they have too much pride. Pride keeps us away from Jesus. That's why the Pharisees called him a demon, because they had lots of pride. Because this story is really pretty comforting, because it's not saying go and get you some faith, like go and conjure it up somewhere. Faith is simply admitting I am helpless, I am weak. So if you're here today and you're like, well, I haven't really connected to Jesus, I haven't thought about him, I don't really care, the main reason might be because we just have too much pride to admit, without you, Jesus, I am nothing. The second ingredient to our faith cake is direction. You can imagine that our, our faith is like a compass and the needle just like always points to true north. And that true north is, is the direction that is, is the object of our faith. Like whatever we're putting our faith in, that's the, the direction that our hearts are going to go. Where do we head? When, where do we go to when we need help from the outside, when we feel desperate? What is, what is the object of our faith? And it's just beautiful to see the blind men, like they are relentless. Like they are, they're, the compass of their faith is pointed at Jesus period. Even though the theology isn't great, even though there's some correction there or whatnot, they're screaming out, they're going after him, barging into the house, walking up to him, give me Jesus or I die. This is the direction of their faith. And this is really good news because the point is direction. The point is not amount or proper theology. It, it matters who the object of our faith is, who we're trusting. Because Maybe this is old pop spirituality, but I feel like I've heard a lot in the past. Like, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you truly believe it with all your heart. You can be any religion or have any spirituality, but it doesn't matter what you believe. Just just be, be true to it. And it's just really important to know. Like, you can think that if you want, but that is the opposite of what Jesus says, where he says, it doesn't matter how hard you believe it, it matters what you believe. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. For example, if Joe and I both have ladders, I know you always sit up front, that's why I work you into analogies. Joe and I both have ladders, and mine is this rickety one that we found in our old house, like the dry rotted, is wooden, they don't even make wooden ladders anymore. Uh, super rickety, and Joe's got a brand new aluminum one. And uh, I just start clamoring up this rickety dry rotted ladder because with total faith, like this is gonna get me. It's been around for 60 years, what could go wrong? And, but Joe, on the other hand, uh, is really timid and worried, scared of heights. I don't know if you're scared of heights. Oh, okay. Oh, it works out then. Uh, and so very timidly, he climbs this brand new ladder all up to all, you know, after 60, 60 years of litigation, you know, I imagine ladder companies probably have their game on point. And, uh, and who's going to make it to the top of the ladder? Like me with all my faith in this rickety 60-year-old ladder or Joe? It doesn't matter how much faith you have. It matters what you have faith in. The last ingredient 
for our faith cake is deeds. Turn with me to James chapter 2. This is where it gets practical. This week as I studied the passage and just reflected more broadly on chapters 8 and 9, uh, where Jesus is doing these trilogies of, trilogies of miracles, I was just really floored by the, uh, the, the predominance of faith and all this stuff. When we look at Jesus' authority, uh, we look at how the authors per- portray him to us of the Gospels. Um, and I was also struck, and I don't know if this is your experience, but how little teaching I've ever really heard on faith. Like, decades of church, even going through seminary, like, what, like, what really is faith? And, like, how do we actually, like, grab it and use it and take it to the bank? And so for the rest of our time this morning, uh, I, I want to get, get really practical um, and, and just chew on, this, chew on this phrase. Faith is habits. Faith is habits. Our daily normal habits are the things that show us where our faith is. And are also our daily habits are also where our faith is created. So if you're with me in, in James chapter 2, this is page 1882 in the Pew Bible, if you're following along. This is pretty, pretty mind-blowing. Starting in chapter 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So James is connecting faith and deeds here for us. He's saying if you, you have faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus for, for salvation, but don't have any deeds, then you're like some kind of like empty, lazy well-wisher. He gives us this little analogy. Like if someone that you know and that you love... Uh, like doesn't have a winter coat for the upcoming winter and doesn't know where they're going to eat tomorrow and you know this person like you know that you know that they are you know they're not lazy you know that they're like working hard you know that you know it's, it's like all the you know excuses we have for not helping people and you, you look at this person and you're like man I hope you're warm this winter like I, I hope you stay warm and get some food I hope you're not too hungry it's that pointless like this isn't a like a a mercy ministry passage, this is showing us how pointless faith is without deeds. If faith is not accompanied by action, it is dead. So if we're, if we're saying, I trust Jesus, he's Lord of my life, I love him with all that I am, I believe in his healing salvation, but then don't do anything, like it's just weird, it doesn't make sense. Look down at verse 18 of James chapter 2. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. If we're making a faith cake, we can't escape the role of what we do, our actions. And I'd encourage you to consider more specifically our habits. The things that we do in the daily rhythms of our life show us our faith, what we have faith in. For example, we go to work each day in faith that we will get paid. Praise God, most of us have employers that aren't going to just like roll the dice on whether or not they decide to pay us for that pay period. You know, like we, if we had a 50-50 chance of getting paid, we'd probably find another job. But we have faith that we'll get paid. It's a, it's, 
hope for something unseen that gets us up and has us do, do the work each day. And also, how crazy would it be to see someone in like abject poverty who refuses to get a job because they're like, well, how do I really know? How do I really know I'm going to get a paycheck if I do the work? Or if we're in the rhythm of working out or eating a certain way, we do that in faith and that habit in faith because of what we hope the effect will have in our health. Or in marriage, we say, yes, I love my wife. She's the, the light of my life. She's the butter to my bread. Or if you're on keto, she's just your butter. And, uh, but then, you know, never talk to her, never serve her, never ask her questions, never spend time with her, criticize her, talk bad to her. Like, what would you say to that guy? Like, you're fooling yourself, man. Like, you're, you're completely lying. If I love my wife, it's going to show up in my daily habits, the minutely habits of my life. Faith is not always some big, grand act of radical obedience. It is that sometimes. But I think it's built or created in the small daily choices that we do over time. And skip down to James uh, 2.24. This is how he summarizes uh, this passage on faith and deeds, faith and works. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. What? Like, if, have you ever read Romans, James? Like, what is going on? Is this a huge contradiction, contradiction in Scripture? Does it make anybody else uncomfortable? Like, Romans, Ephesians, like, Scripture just so clear. We've been saved by grace through faith alone. What is James talking about? Well, it, it's super fascinating to note that many scholars w believe that James would have been very familiar with the writings of Paul, who wrote Romans <coughs> and Ephesians and is a big, uh, big grace guy in scripture. So he's not ignorant of that teaching. We also see James in Acts chapter 15 on a council of the early church working out this issue of like what is required behavior-wise to become a Christian because people who weren't Jewish were getting saved and then the Jewish people were saying like, that's great, you're saved, but you also got to do all this Jewish stuff too. And we see James kind of making a declarative statement in there saying like, no, you don't have to. Like there's a, you, you can't worship other idols, which makes sense because we're worshiping Jesus. But you don't have to be a Jewish person. You don't have to live Jewish laws to, to become a Christian. So most, most commentators believe that James is really intentionally using the same language that Paul used, where he says, like, we've been saved by grace through faith alone, uh, to kind of get our attention, to kind of rattle us and, and, and wake us up. Only, only faith saves us. And the only faith that can save us that can get us into the healing presence of Jesus is faith that works, that expresses its, itself in our daily habits. The only way to experience the joy and intimacy of marriage is not through a confession of a vow at the wedding and then nothing else. It's daily faithful habits that create trust and intimacy and joy. So the question is, what are the works? Like what, like, what do, we, what do we do if we, want, if we want more faith? Well, Dallas Willard was a professor and a pastor for decades who uh, wrote extensively on this topic of, like, how do we experience the healing presence of Jesus? How do we follow him and actually become like him practically? He says this, Our beliefs and feelings cannot be changed by choice. We cannot just choose to have different beliefs and feelings. 
but we do have some liberty to take in different ideas and information and to think about things in different ways. We can choose to take in the Word of God, and when we do that, when we do that, beliefs and feelings will steadily be pulled in a godly direction. He goes on to say, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds, to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our, our this is like, he's old school, listen to this, our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, these burdensome habits that we have of just dwelling, you know, on Twitter or whatever, things less than God. But these are habits and not the law of gravity and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit can be developed. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. Do you hear that, that, that compass language? If God is the longing of our souls, he will, he will be where our inward beings point the direction of our faith. And so what the invitation there is, to, is to draw our minds, to keep God before our minds throughout our days in our habits. And so I just want to compare and contrast one set of, one set of habits uh, and, and just consider uh, what it would do for us spiritually. Because I think, I think the, this idea of cultivating habits is a, is a place where God can cultivate our faith and believing in the one who God sent. But before I get into this, two, two disclaimers. One, if you, don't, like, if you don't feel the need for Jesus' healing presence, like if it's just not, you know, you're like, I like my life. It's working. I got a system that's, that's crushing it right now. Um, like, then keep your habits. Like, it's okay. You know? Jesus' healing presence is available to people who are desperate and, and want transformation, and he never forces it on anybody. He, never, he didn't chase the Pharisees around trying to make them desperate. He just... He did argue with them, but he, he just offered it to them. And the second thing is, this is just an example. So if this doesn't apply to you and your season of life or your age group or whatever, like use your imagination and consider how this kind of habit, habit contrast could, could work in your life. So the alarm goes off tomorrow morning. You turn it off feeling groggy uh, because you stayed up uh, watching Netflix too late. Like, that autoplay thing, was that, three seconds now? It used to be ten back in the day. Like, they will play the next episode before you have a chance to, you know, turn the, turn the TV off. So you stay up too late watching Netflix. You feel super groggy. You grab your phone next to bed because you feel so, so crappy, and you scroll through Facebook. And first thing you see is your friend from high school's brand-new house. It's like they hired Joanna Gaines to decorate it. It's perfect. Next thing you see, maybe you see your, something your granddaughter posted you know, that just makes you feel sad for the youth these days. And, and then maybe you see your co-worker's vacation pics with his beautiful wife kissing him on the cheek, and you're like, well, we just had a terrible fight last night. Like, my marriage isn't like that. And then there's an article about some new shooting out there, and like the one that happened this past week in Virginia, 12 people shot at de at dead at work. And, and probably depending on what you like, you know, the Facebook algorithm's going to get you a lot of response articles to get you all riled up. Maybe it'll be like anti-gun articles or it'll be like defensive gun articles and get you all hot and bothered about that issue. And then you realize the time and you get in the shower and you're, you rush out the door and you're in the car and all of a sudden like every single human that's in your way you just like wish would disappear. You're like, why do we need a new plague? Like there are too many people. All these people are annoying. Like 
what is the state of our souls? Like, was there any meth or like drug addiction or prostitution in that like little sequence? No, it was just like Netflix and our phone and you know sleeping late, staying up late. But but we're not talking about like earning our way into heaven or anything. Just like what is the state of our souls there? Like we're frazzled, we're angry, we have no love for our fellow man in our heart. Let's contrast that uh, with with a different level, uh, different series of habits. The alarm goes off, you turn it off and sit up. Your phone is charging on the table next to the door and you sit on your edge of bed quietly. You're tired, of course, uh, but not too tired because you have this habit of turning all screens off at 9 p.m. and you just read a book on paper or talk to your spouse or something like that. And then you actually go to bed at a decent time and you get up from bed and grab some coffee or tea or Monster, whatever your drink of choice is. Uh, and you sit down at a place that you like to sit in your living quarters and you open the word of God and the first thing, and the first thing that enters your heart and mind is, is, is the eternal, perfect, tried and true word of God. How might that change? And let's say you're doing our summer challenge, your same page summer challenge and tomorrow, which starts tomorrow, but that's nice, they gave us a couple of days off. It starts on a Monday. And tomorrow it has us reading John 1. And so you open to John 1. You take a sip of your, your tasty coffee and you, you open to John 1 and you read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. First thing that enters your brain, brain box in the morning, besides coffee, I guess, uh, is, is this, this word of the hugeness of our God, that everything that exists co- comes from him, and he's over everything, and he's eternal, and he, and he has the light, the light of men. You keep, you keep reading. It says, yet to all who received him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So now we're... Some kids have daddy issues downstairs, so go with that. Um, so now, we're, the, now we're, we're chewing on the fact that the God of the universe is our father, that we can call, call him dad, that we're his children. Before we get any comparison of other stuff, before we get floored by the rampant evil in our society, we're dwelling on the fact that God is the source of everything and that he's our father. And then one more. John 1 such a great chapter. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. So now we're dwelling on the grace of God that would allow us to be his children and the blessings that come to us. Like, what blessings have I received, we might think. Like, well, I have this delicious coffee, and I'm healthy, and I have a job to go to, and there are people who who like me or even love me and and we, and we're, and how does that point me to the fullness of Jesus's grace how long would all that take not not very long like is it is, you know, is God extra happy with you if you turn screens off at nine or you know whatever you, you any of these specific habits no but the question is how can we point the pole star of our inward being as old Dallas Willard says the the north a uh, point of our compass to God to keep him before our minds. And again, this is just the example. 
But do you see how the work of believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, coming to him in faith for his healing presence comes down to our habits? Is it a sin to watch Netflix? No. Is it a sin to check your phone first thing in the morning? No. But is it helpful to to experience Jesus' healing presence? Probably not. The work is to put him before our minds, to structure our habits throughout our days, in the morning, at lunch, and all throughout our days, so that we're living life framed in the reality of God, of God's truth, not throughout uh, someone else's or our own, God help us. And again, if you know, I'm stepping on your toes, you love your social media or whatever, you like your habits, like cheers, like this is not like a command, this is an invitation to consider how your, hob- your habits, not hobbies, uh, your habits can, can point us to, to Jesus. And, and listen, just like pastorally, it would be an incredible joy to process your habits with you, like to take an inventory of habits and consider what could be tweaked or transformed. Because I'm, I'm convinced there's not a circumstance or lifestyle out there that can't be tweaked uh, to, to where our, our eyes are pointed to Jesus, our minds are dwelling on Jesus. So if you feel stuck, if you're n- not sure how to process habits, like let's, let's talk. Because the desire of my heart, like, geez, this is, this is my job. This is, like, this is why I'm here in Big Rapids, is to see us all experience the healing presence of Jesus. And the longer I'm a pastor, the more I see that, that one of the biggest obstacles is like what I said during body life. It's distraction. It's like these bad habits that just kind of keep us just kind of in this like numb, frazzled state. I know it can be scary to look at habits because... Uh, you know, we might know at some level they're, they're not going to be good or we have bad habits or whatever. But we know that Jesus' healing presence is immovably good and that he came, as we just read, uh, in grace and truth. So the truth might be that we have some bad habits that we need to kick, uh, but the grace of God is that he's for us, that Jesus went to the cross for all of our bad habits, that he lived life perfectly keeping communion with the Father before his his mind. His pole star of his inward being was always pointed directly to God the Father. And then he went to the cross paying the price for all of our bad habits, for all of the idolatry, for all the, the self-help schemes that we go to in pride, thinking that we can fix ourselves instead of going to Jesus in desperation. And he says to us, there's no <laughs> condemnation for those of you who have, have faith in me. He's seen our mess and he loves us anyways. And he calls us to himself to transform us with his healing presence. Let me pray.